Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 145, The Blame Game. Perfectionism shows up in our lives in a lot of different ways. But one way we haven't really talked about much on this podcast is how being a perfectionist or growing up in a perfectionist home can lead to a high level of blame and self-blame. When something goes wrong, there must be someone to blame. If this statement sounds familiar to you, you might have grown up in a home where appearance was more important than actually dealing with problems, and it's a lot more common than most people realize. So in this episode, Denor and I are going to talk about what blame is, why we do it, how it interferes with learning and growing, and what to do instead. The first part is what blame is. Blame is our attempt to put responsibility for a problem either on someone else or on ourselves. In many cases, the blame is misdirected. The person we're blaming for the problem isn't actually responsible for the problem, and the problem is not their fault. We should unpack responsibility and fault here. When a person is responsible for something, it means that the fallout from the problem is their mess to clean up. But when a person is at fault for something, it means they created the mess in the first place. Sorting out the difference between the two can help us understand both why we blame and why it's not a good response to problems. Here's an example of what we're talking about. So in ER, which is a TV show from the 90s set in an emergency room, there's a young doctor who is a surgical resident. And so this means his specialty in medicine is surgery. At one point, a pediatric surgeon joins the hospital team and the surgical resident wants to join in on some of her surgeries to learn how pediatric surgery is done. During an operation on an infant who's been in a car accident, he gets to watch what she does. And then the pediatric surgeon tells him, close up, but don't do anything else. I have to go check on the other child who was also in the accident. And she leaves the operating room. So he takes over to close. Now, this literally just means sew up the incision. That's all he was supposed to do. But he notices what looks like a bit of debris on the infant's liver. So he says, oh, I'll brush this away. And it turns out it's not a bit of debris. It's something infants have in their liver for the first few months of their lives, and the infant begins to bleed out. Now, they manage to get the pediatric surgeon back in, and she saves the baby's life, but she won't let the surgical resident do anything else. And later, she just dresses him down, and she says, if that baby dies, it will be my responsibility, but it will be your fault. In other words, she'll have to take the fallout, but he created the problem. When I first saw this, I was struggling with what is the difference between responsibility and fault? My therapist had actually said to me right around the time I saw this, what's the difference? And all there isn't any is all now you need to go home and think about that because there is a big difference, but you've got to figure it out for yourself. And then I watch a TV show and it totally put it right. There is the example, the difference between responsibility and fault. Blame is also often an attempt to hold someone accountable. We see this a lot in group work. One student blames another for not doing something or doing something wrong or not showing up or whatever. But blaming doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't work to hold anyone accountable. All it usually does is make a bad situation worse. 
The person being blamed will often blame right back rather than taking responsibility for what happened, especially if it wasn't their responsibility or their fault. What we end up with is an impasse where everyone feels they're right and nobody's willing to admit they're wrong. Self-blame is a response that often comes from our childhood experiences. If we grew up in a home or a culture where as kids we were blamed for things that logically were not our fault or responsibility, some of us may have developed the knee-jerk response of, well, of course that's my fault, everything is. If you have depression, you're more likely to engage in self-blaming because your depression leads you to believe that everything is your fault due to feelings of inadequacy and hopelessness. If you were abused as a child, you may see yourself as deserving blame and punishment because that was the norm when you were growing up. Whatever the cause, self-blame is toxic if carried to extremes. Yes, it's good to examine what you did and how it led to the current situation, but self-blame often leads us to being responsibility hogs. We don't want to admit any part of the problem was anyone else's responsibility. Now let's talk about why we blame. Human beings, well, we tend to see blame as a way of assigning responsibility and demanding accountability. But as Denor has just pointed out, blaming doesn't work to hold people accountable. And blame is also an emotional reaction to what other people said or did. He made me feel bad or she made me angry. It's a very common feeling when we're getting ready to blame someone. But this response, while understandable, also ignores the fact that we are responsible for our own emotional reactions and responses. Sure, I may be angry because someone didn't turn in their part of the group project on time, but the person who didn't do it didn't make me angry. I responded with anger to their behavior. That's on me. Because I could just as easily have responded with curiosity. You know, what happened that made it hard for them to do this on time? Is there a better way to approach this? Michael Timms at the Harvard Business Review talks about some fascinating research on humans and blame. First, human beings are already pre-programmed to blame others for problems. Part of it has to do with the fundamental attribution bias, a known psychological issue every human being has. Essentially, this means we tend to believe what people do reflects on who they are instead of noticing social or environmental factors that might have an influence on what they do. And our biology backs up this bias. Our brains actually tend to conclude that any good thing was a coincidence, while any bad thing was intentional. This makes it really easy to blame people because our brains, not just our programming, says, if something went wrong, someone must be to blame. We're fighting an uphill battle against our own biology when we try to find ways to deal with problems that don't involve blaming someone. And another problem that Tim's talks about in this article is we just don't notice just how often we're actually blaming. He suggests taking a day and noticing every time we blame someone or something else or ourselves for problems that are probably not as black and white or clear cut as we think they are. You will be surprised. He mentions that when he works with executives, they often say they think the don't blame message is a great one for their subordinates to learn, and they never think about applying it to their own behavior. Finally, Tim's notes that blame short circuits our brain's ability to actually deal with problems. Instead, being blamed makes us more likely to pull away and resist accountability because we think we'll get punished if we accept responsibility for anything that's gone wrong. Blame interferes with learning and growing. One of the primary effects of blame is labeling, 
we label the person being blamed as irresponsible or clueless or uncaring. When we do that, it makes it harder to interact with or work with that person later. Being blamed also means that a person might change temporarily, but only out of fear. If we blame a student for not studying, they may step up their studying for a week or two, but it won't last. Blame doesn't produce lasting change or growth. If we're the one doing the blaming, we may also be assuming we don't have to change or grow, that it's all on the other person. That means we grab onto the idea that changing growth is other people's job, but not ours. Whether we're a teacher, student, an employee, or a boss, this blocks learning in big and small ways. And if we're blaming ourselves, that can create all kinds of negative stuff that gets in the way of learning. Shame, guilt, depression, low self-esteem. We've talked about some of these in other episodes. So what should we do instead of blaming, instead of our knee-jerk response? There are three main ways to respond to a problematic situation that don't involve blaming. The first one is make curiosity your default response to a problem. The second is hold people accountable. And the third is creating a culture of safety where you can do both of those things. So we'll talk about each of these now. First, curiosity. Instead of getting mad, get curious. This is not the response most people have to upsetting situations, but it can be one of the most powerful in solving the problem. Mitch Geiger at LinkedIn talks about how to use curiosity to get to solutions, and he gives several steps for this process. So first, look past the symptoms. Too often, we take the symptom of a problem, for example, failing a test, as the problem, when it's really an indicator of a bigger problem, like problems with time management. So when you get curious about something bad happening, or a problem happening, or an issue, the first thing you need to say is, is this the root problem or is it a symptom of a bigger issue that I'm not aware of yet or that we're not aware of yet? And ask a lot of questions about the problem. Look at it from different angles. Look at what decisions and actions might be connected to it and give yourself the time to analyze it in a curious way. Secondly, while you're being curious, put your ego away. This is not about you, or at least it's only about you insofar as you're responsible for something. Don't approach the problem with the view that you know better than anyone else about the problem. Be humble. Be willing to ask for and accept help in understanding and solving the problem. Third, make the solution team-centric. Now, if this sounds funny because we're talking about you, the individual student failing a test, we understand that. But every student has some kind of team. At a minimum, that team is the student and their teacher. It might also include study group partners, friends and family members, sports teammates, and others who are involved in the student's life as a student. In this step, ask who's getting less than desirable results. If it's a failed test, at least two people are, the student and the teacher. Once we know who's affected, we can figure out what kind of control and input each of those people have to the problem. The student may need to learn to manage time better, and the teacher may need to give the student some guidance on how time management probably works in their particular class. The second way to respond to a problem is to hold people accountable, including yourself. Jordan Harbinger notes that we tend to either externalize blame, where we blame others, or internalize it, where we blame ourselves. 
Both reactions are extreme ends of a spectrum and neither are helpful to solving problems. The solution, according to Harbinger, is not easy, but it is simple. Locate the area where we are both recognizing other people's responsibility for the problem and owning our own responsibility for it. That middle ground of the spectrum is accountability. When we hold ourselves and other people accountable, several positive things happen. We recognize how much of the problem is our responsibility and how much of it is not. We recognize that our emotional reactions to the problem are our responsibility. We understand what happened and how to solve it. Now to create accountability, we're gonna go back to a bunch of questions, just like with curiosity. Harbinger suggests asking these questions to establish accountability. What specifically is the negative situation? How is it showing up here in the moment? How did we arrive at this situation? What events, decisions, or factors led to it? Who else is involved in the situation? What are their roles and their responsibilities? What is my role and responsibility in this situation? What external factors, things that aren't under anyone's direct control, what did they play? You know, what, what role did they play in this situation? What questions can I ask of myself and the other party to better understand the situation? What do I need to know to correctly understand who's accountable here? What do I not know about this situation? And finally, how did all of these factors, events, decisions and non-decisions, personalities, conflicts, environment, etc., interact to lead to this negative situation? Once you have answers to these questions, you can determine how much of the situation belongs to you and your actions, and then own that responsibility. This is from a therapeutic method created by Irismar Reis de Oliveira called trial-based cognitive therapy. In this method, you look at the problem and estimate how much of it was stuff you had control over or could change, and also how much of it belongs to other people or outside events which you did not have control over. As an example, if I'm late to a meeting because of traffic, I can own it this way. I left on time, but I didn't check the traffic report before I left. That made me 20 minutes late to the meeting. I'll own 50% of the responsibility for my lateness. The traffic was not under my control at all, but I could have checked the traffic report and left 20 minutes earlier, and I didn't. That's on me. Or let's say a class doesn't do well on an exam, and the entire class, including the teacher, gets together to determine accountability. One student might say, I had a family emergency on the day before the exam, so I didn't study. I had studied the last three nights before that, but I left four chapters for the day before the exam. I accept 80% of the responsibility for my bad score here. The other 20% was stuff beyond my control. Another student might say, I didn't study much at all. I just crammed before the night before the exam, so I accept 100% of the responsibility for my bad score. And the teacher might say, I realize the wording on several of these questions is not clear, and I should probably give everyone credit for those questions since I wasn't clear about what I expected. Out of 20 questions, six of them are not clear, so I'll take 30% responsibility for that problem. Note that each person has a different problem to sort out responsibility for, but most of these also overlap. Finally, create a culture of safety. Todd Henry talks about the markers of a culture of blame. These include a general lack of accountability, a reluctance to admit mistakes, and a tendency to try to cover them up instead of fixing them, a lack of commitment to the excellence of the work, and gossip or whispers in the hallway. When you see these problems, it's time to create a culture of safety.
A culture of safety is one where it's safe to make mistakes and bring up problems, where those actions won't automatically result in being blamed or punished for the problem or mistake. While Henry's focus is on cultures in business, this also works for the classroom, and his tools work to create a culture where accountability is the norm. Make sure that every assignment has clear expectations. If you're a teacher, create rubrics and share them with the students. If you're a student organizing a group project, get the group members to agree on roles, expectations, and deadlines early in the process. This helps combat the problems of lack of commitment to excellence, as well as lack of accountability. With clear expectations for excellence, it's possible to strive toward them, and it's also possible to hold people accountable for them. Admit and take responsibility for mistakes. Tim's suggests we adopt the attitude of, we're all learning here. Mistakes are part of the process. Demonstrating that you know how to accept responsibility for your mistakes, that's a breath of fresh air for many people, especially if they're scared of mistakes. Seeing someone show how to handle having made a mistake and correcting it can be a huge learning moment for a lot of students and teachers. See our episodes 23 and 55 for more about how to handle mistakes, too. When you hear people trying to create blame, shift the topic back to accountability and responsibility. Remind people we are not going to play the blame game in this group or this classroom or whatever, you know, this workplace. The goal is to take responsibility and work through the problem, not sweep it under the rug or pretend it doesn't exist. And finally, make a point of keeping track of both successes and failures. Praise people for working through problems. Recognize how failures and mistakes lead to new insights and understandings too. One company I know, I know about, they actually give a prize for the best mistake of the quarter, every quarter. You could do that in your classroom. Defang the fear of failure. Normalize it and recognize it as this is part of the process. Tim's also suggests making sure we recognize what we can and cannot change. We can't change other people. We can't change the weather or the traffic or the pandemic, at least not individually. We can't change school policy, at least not in the moment of the difficult situation. But what we can change is how we respond to other people, the weather, the traffic, the policy. If it's going to be storming outside, we should add in time in our morning routine so we can get there on time anyway. Same for traffic. Make it a habit to check the traffic patterns when you wake up. Know the policies so you don't inadvertently break them. That kind of thing. And of course, our episodes 130 through 133 talk about how to deal with difficult people. Now, when it comes to Denor's and my experiences with it, I admit I have a huge responsibility complex due to my childhood experiences. I totally own that. But that means I've got to be really careful about taking on too much blame or responsibility. I am very used to saying everything is my fault. It is all my fault. I, it's all, I'm to blame for it all. I have to fix it all. The trial-based therapy method, which my therapist pointed me at, and this basically determines percentage of responsibility. That's really helped me move away from assuming everything is my fault or that I'm always the one to blame. Getting good with making mistakes has helped too, although I admit there is always that first act, I screwed up, the world is ending gut reaction before I can get to, no, this is just a mistake, it's not the end of the world, rational response. So I will say these methods take practice because our normal response is to blame and blame hard. As Tim's pointed out, it's in our biology, but it's still worth practicing and it's still worth doing. And like 
Adam, I've definitely lived with a huge responsibility and guilt and shame complex uh, to the point that I blamed myself for my dyspraxia. I've blamed myself for relationships uh, that ended, even when that end or that pause was not necessarily a fault or a responsibility thing. It was a case of just timing not matching up. It's taking me a long time and a lot of repetition to come to the realization that one, blaming myself for a developmental disability really doesn't make a lot of sense. It wouldn't make sense to an outsider, so it shouldn't make sense to me. And two, me blaming myself wasn't helping me deal with the situation better. It took me seeing a therapist to give me the context of, hey, you've had this disability your entire life, and you're doing these things even with this dyspraxia, and that's something to be proud of, rather than saying, oh my God, everyone can see me, this is not what I need them to see, and when something goes wrong, it must be my fault. It took therapy for me to realize the same thing about relationships. Sometimes timing is everything in life, as are prior experiences, and when timing and bad prior experiences collide, can put a halt into things, but that doesn't mean there's blame or responsibility to be distributed or shared. These were tough lessons, they are tough lessons for me, but I also know that having this approach, having the, you don't have to be perfect for things to be good, really helps me a lot. So that's what we have for you in episode 145. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Android. We have decided to no longer publish this podcast to Spotify, so if that's where you found us, please take a look at Apple Podcasts or other podcast apps. We will probably be there. We're hosted on Blueberry.com, and we would really appreciate it if you could write a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next time for episode 146, when Adam and I talk about patch writing, what it is, and how to avoid it. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. We look forward to seeing you next week.